0: Well, we've been working through our Biblical Manhood and Womanhood series, and uh, much like our Biblical Worldview series, uh, this feels a lot like a flyover um, and, and only suggestive of, of what all we could learn. But I hope what it does, it'll give us some, some benchmarks, some pegs on which to hang our thinking. We've seen God's good design… And really, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, key to so much uh, of our life, uh, both in how we look at the world, the material universe, and uh, how we interact with God and how we interact with one another. And then last week, we looked at the fact that, that just as the universe was marred by the fall, we are marred by the fall, and our relationships are marred by the fall. What makes uh, marriage Challenging at times is we are two sinners that said, I do. Uh, what makes parenting difficult, what makes being a kid difficult, even if you love Jesus, is the fact that, that we are sinners by birth and by choice. And what makes the relationships of men and women in the world challenging um, is the departure from God's good design. And it's really important for us to keep reminding ourselves that the degree to which we match up with God's good design, is the degree to which we're doing what is profitable and what is what is healthful in our relationships. Our culture preaches something opposite. They preach that somehow we're better off to deviate, which is exactly the line that Satan used in the garden when he said, well, you're really not going to be fulfilled. Uh, God's holding you back. If you obey God, then you're going to be held back from what you could be. God knows that when you take of the tree that He told you not to eat of, that you'll become like Him. Well, we know just the opposite. That's when things went, went uh, south. That's when things went bad. So, when we start talking about our relationships, ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, we know that humanity has been marred in every, in, in every arena. Uh, sin by its nature harms um, not only the sinner but everybody that has a relationship with him, And that, we see that particularly uh, in the family and in marriage, but we see it in all our relationships. We see it in our relationships as church members. So what is our hope for anything different? And the hope is the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head that God promised there in the garden. And as the Old Testament unfolds, it, it keeps talking about this one who's coming, um, the Messiah, the Savior King, anointed by God Himself, who would ransom all the families of the earth, and and would in, in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. So people everywhere who are rescued by Him are going to find happiness in Him. Well, when the God Man Jesus Christ finally shows up, the Old Testament, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming. The New Testament starts with He's here. And when Jesus begins his 33 years of life as a human being on earth, he lives life completely in line with God's original perfect design, and completely in line with his righteous law. He fulfills it in every way. His perfect righteousness imputed to our account takes the place of our sinful record, and on that basis, God declares us righteous, that is justified before God. But practically speaking, our righteousness is measured by how closely we conform to His. We have the Word of God. We don't have the power to fulfill the law. It is only by the Spirit of God that He gives to those who believe in Him that we can do so. But but His righteousness shows us what this looks like in, in living color. If we want to find the perfect example of a man who interacts with women... In a way that pleases God perfectly, Jesus is our benchmark. So that raises the question, how did Jesus interact with women? What can we learn from that? And it's striking how, how much Scripture actually is devoted to his interaction uh, with the women that were around at the time. Let's start with the first woman that he knew well who would that be? Yeah, his, his mom, right? So, we know from Luke 2 that Jesus lived in submission to his mother and his father. In Luke 2, 50 to 51, we read, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. That's when he said, didn't you know I would be about my father's business? Remember, he had stayed there in Jerusalem with the teachers of the law and they thought he was in the crowd, and he wasn't, and they were afraid they'd lost him. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. It's very likely that the reason that we have this account count, not only from the Holy Spirit, but through Luke's interview with Mary. He would have known her uh, personally. And as the story, as you read Luke 2... You find out that Joseph and Mary didn't understand all that Jesus did. They didn't understand all that he meant by what he said. They were not sinless. Think of it. You know, it's hard enough being a parent, but, you know, because we're all sinners, but think about being a parent of a sinless kid. Not just a kid who thinks he's sinless, but a kid who actually is. Um, They were not sinless. They made their mistakes, and yet, Jesus, 12 years old, were told, willingly submitted to them. Joseph evidently died before Jesus' public ministry began, but his mother was still alive, and he honored her throughout his ministry, seeing to it, even on the cross, that John the Apostle would care for her when Jesus was gone. Now, it didn't mean that she always understood everything was going on, and it didn't mean that he never had to correct that thinking, but what we do see is a care for her, that honors her just as the fifth commandment would dictate. In John 19, we read, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, Jesus is on the cross. He's being executed. He's dying. He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. It's believed that at some point that John actually moved to Ephesus and was an elder there, and there at least is a a small home uh, in Ephesus in Turkey that purports to be the house where Mary lived with the apostle John. And so we see right from the beginning that, that Jesus, both when he was a young man and when he was older, honored his mother. You who are hoping for a godly spouse, when you meet someone you think may fit the bill, observe how the young man treats his mother. Observe how the young woman treats her dad. And that's about as good a measure, a practical measure, as anything about how he or she will treat you when you're living together as a married couple. If he's rude and resistant to his mom, one word for you, run. Run. If she badmouths her dad, run. Because these are the people that they're living with. These are the people that they owe respect and honor to. And if they're not doing that, don't expect it's going to happen with you. In Luke 8, 1 through 3, we learned that women were a vital part of Jesus' ministry. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So Jesus was not threatened by these women being part of the the traveling group. Uh, He was not uh, put off by their ministry ministry. And by their helping financially and in other ways uh, with the ministry that was going on, you, you have this um, really brothers and sisters. It kind of mirrors what the church is going to be like, brothers and sisters in Christ working together for the sake of the gospel. And we see this at His crucifixion in Matthew 27. There are also many women there looking on from a distance. And, and several of the gospels mention this, who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to Him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of, of Zebedee. So you, you have women actively taking part in the ministry that Christ had, and really a vital part of it, uh, meeting needs that needed to be met so that he could carry on uh, the ministry uh, that was going on. So these are women that, that were believers, and they believed in Christ, they believed in what he was doing, and they gave of themselves and and Jesus, there's no uh, repudiation or stiff-arming of these women from being part of this. What perhaps is one of the more insightful things that we see in Jesus' ministry to women is how he treated women in general, women who weren't yet believers, and or women who have just become believers as they expressed, uh, interacted with him and expressed love to him. So in John 4, we have the this really striking account of the woman at the well. And we read in verse 7, "'A woman from Samaria came to drink water. Jesus had sat down by the well to rest. Jesus said to her, "'Give me a drink.'" For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, "'How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans.'" And then, as he talks with her and the disciples return, we read just then his disciples came back and marveled. He was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with her? So, what's striking about this is here's a woman who's, whose married life has been a shambles. She's had five husbands, and now she's with another one who's not her husband. She's drawing water in the middle of the day, evidently to avoid other townspeople who would look down on her. But Jesus initiates conversation with her. He, he asks her to give him to drink. One of the best ways to reach out for a person is not just to serve them but ask them to serve you it It shows there, there's something about um, being allowed to do something for someone that where someone has a need, he's a person that's greater than you, having a need and letting you serve it, that elevates your standing. He asked her to give him to drink, which when he did so, he's crossing the cultural barriers um, of gender, because men and women didn't do this in this time. He's crossing the barrier of race. She was the Samaritan, and, it, and in particular, Uh, you'll note that this is what she brought out. Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans, and it was vice versa. And and he crosses the boundary of reputation. There's no indication that he's worried that somehow his reputation is going to be ruined. By the way, he practiced this with men as well. You remember this, right, with Levi, with Matthew? He he went to eat with sinners. He was criticized for it, And, and yet he's okay with that because he has come to serve them. She proves in the conversation with her to have more insight into the Messiah and spiritual things than many of her contemporaries, including men in the religious profession. She's one of the early ones to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. In John four twenty-five to 26, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. So she's got a, she has an expectation of coming Messiah. Unlike most of the religious leaders that, that we met, they were looking just politically. She's looking at a spiritual question. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, if you read through the Gospels, his being that direct doesn't happen that often. And look, look whom he chose to tell that to. She immediately goes off and starts telling everybody else that she's met the Messiah. Or she puts it like, could this possibly be the Messiah? He told me everything I ever did. Because she knows her reputation with the townspeople is not great. But, but she shows tremendous insight, and here... The whole encounter works the way it does, in part because of the way Jesus treated her. A woman that was looked down on, a woman that was of a different race that, where people did not interact, and, and a woman at a time when men and women kept things very separate. By the way, she's not worried that Jesus is hitting on her. And, and we're going to see this consistently when Jesus interacts with women. They're not worried that he's coming on to them, that he's trying to seduce them. He had that kind of purity of life, that kind of straightforwardness of character. They're not worried about that. And we find that he interacts with them in, in settings that are, are public, where you know, it's not like he's throwing away reputation or whatever, but he's, but he's clearly publicly crossing the lines that had been put in place in that particular culture. And in so doing, he actually raises the estimate of who women are. We see this in his relationship with Mary and Martha, sisters of Lazarus. Remember in Luke 10, 38 to 42, how Mary sits at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. Martha was distracted with much serving, and and Jesus ends up commending Mary's choice. So... The point of that lesson was was not to you know to value the relationship more than all the things that need to be done, but but what you see is that that Jesus is perfectly comfortable with this conversation with teaching Mary one on one discipling her, um, and that again is different from the culture. You see this relationship with Mary and Martha. Throughout the book of John in John 11 after Lazarus dies, listen to the insight that these women show. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's exactly what Mary's going to say later. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Well, Martha thinks he's talking about the resurrection at the end of the age, that kind of statement, the only other person that I'm recalling that actually talks that directly to, you know, declaring you are the Christ, is Peter. When Jesus says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And here, Martha, who was the one that was distracted with much serving, shows her spiritual maturity and spiritual insight in her faith in Jesus Christ. And then when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. You know, these, these, are, these are sensitive seasons in their lives. And, and as you step back and look at that, you look at, at the care, the relationship that Jesus had with these women and the faith that they had in them, and, and the care that He took to minister to them individually, it's instructive. In Luke 7, we go a bit broader. Then turning toward, this is Luke 7, he's eating with a Pharisee named Simon in his house, and you recall the houses are more open than our houses tend to be, Um, open courtyards and that kind of thing. So it was possible for a passerby to be able to look into where a dinner was happening. And this woman enters in, and you're going to see Christ is going to describe what, what she does. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, which was customary way that you would treat guests. And Simon ignored the custom. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Now, let me just comment. If you think about our own culture, this would be super awkward. Don't you think? I mean, this, this would be awkward. And so just like double the awkwardness. And, you know, it's not that we're going to have a foot-kissing ceremony, uh, you know, after, after the service. Um, the point is this, that Jesus Jesus knew why she was doing what she was doing. And Jesus, Jesus you know, the, the others around the table show disgust at this woman. Jesus does not. He actually commends her. He says, Therefore I tell you, because of this action of love, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. That he who is forgiven little loves little. He's he's given a parable earlier. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Her faith was in Jesus. Her faith is in Jesus that his forgiveness would cleanse her from her sins, and she was known as being a sinner in the community, okay? And and that was why, why her love for Jesus was expressed in such a profuse way, and Jesus knew that. I mean, Jesus knew how to treat people. Even when they did awkward things, Jesus knew how to treat people in a way that showed respect and honor and that looked into who they actually were. He was not threatened. He wasn't put off by her sincere expression of love and faith. Then there's the woman who anointed Jesus' head with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard near His crucifixion time. His commendation was in the face of those who criticized her for being wasteful. He says in Mark 14, she has done a beautiful thing, to me she has anointed my body beforehand for burial and truly i say to you wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world what she has done will be told in memory of her and you find in john 12 that mary of bethany anoints jesus feet and wipes them with her hair similar time period with the same kind of meaning you have this expression of love for jesus that he commends what about the apostles well, you see, reflected in the apostles' treatment of women and working with them, the influence of Jesus, frequently Paul lists women among his co laborers in the gospel. For instance, in Romans 16, he gives a long list of co laborers It's possible that eight or even nine of the people in the list are women. The names are foreign to us, and so It's not always clear depending on what ending they have, whether they're men or women, but some of them are clear. And among them are Phoebe, who is called a servant, literally deacon of the church in Synchria. Synchria was across the isthmus from Corinth, and Phoebe was a servant of the church that he particularly uh, mentions is in Rome at the time. He calls Priscilla and her husband Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks for my life. We often see them showing up in the account of Paul's missionary journeys. They were the ones who together went to Apollos, the the eloquent preacher, um, to, to explain to him what Christ had done beyond what John the Baptist had predicted in his ministry. Apollos just knew about John. He didn't know about the fulfillment. There were some things that needed to be... So they went together and explained that to him. Other women that Paul mentions among the many individuals he greets at the end of the letter of the Romans are the mother of Rufus. And then he mentions a lady named um, Mary who has worked hard for you, along with the sister of Nereus. Um, So women are mixed in among uh, the many others that are listed as co-workers in Philippi that church begins with the conversion of Lydia a businesswoman from Thyatira to seller of purple uh, likely the first convert the best as we know in Philippi you remember that Paul ended up uh, this is this is breaking into Europe uh, Paul ended up in Philippi after the vision of the night that said, you know, come over into Macedonia, northern Greece, to help us. There was a man motioning him, and the comment is made that a man was motioning him, and when he got there, it was a woman that he was sent to. Uh, Lydia comes to know the Lord. She and her companions had come to the riverside to pray. There wasn't even a synagogue yet. And that's where Paul and Silas met her and shared the gospel, and the Lord opened her heart, and She believed. The second likely convert was a demon-possessed slave girl that was used by her masters for fortune-telling. And Paul cast the demon out, ending the slave owner's hope of gain from her. We're not told explicitly that she became part of the church. The implication is that she did. What does eventuate, though, is that because her being rescued from the demon meant that the slave owners no longer could make money off of her, The slave owners then accused Paul and Silas falsely and and had them beaten and jailed, where, ironically, the third charter member of the church was converted, the Philippian jailer, along with his household. When Paul writes to the believers in Philippi, he entreats Euodia and Syntyche uh, to agree in the Lord, and evidently they were having some tiff between them. And yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women, and look how he describes them, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Think think about if we were to to view, if if men and women were to view each other as co-laborers in the gospel, Laboring side by side, our names, their names of these brothers and sisters in Christ, their names written in the book of life. What would that dictate in terms of how we treated them, the honor with which we treated them? In fact, Peter's going to take that right into the marriage relationship when he calls for husbands to treat their wives, to live with them in an understanding way. Uh, he says that your prayers are hindered when you don't do this. And they are heirs together with you of the grace of life. And so, you know, once again, you know, if if we're having trouble with our relationship, particularly, you know, men with women, it's good for us to remember that these are children of the King. These are people ransomed with the blood of Christ. And they're not only made in the image of God, but they're redeemed by the blood of Christ. And for that reason, we're going to treat them with honor and respect. In his letter to the church in Philippi, Paul will speak of their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and he declares that he holds them in his heart, for they are partakers with me of grace. And then in Philippians 1.8, he says, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You know, one of the things that we've, we've seen about the apostle Paul is his deep affection for those that co-labored with him both men and women they were in it together in colossians 4 among the active church members paul greets he mentions nympha and the church in her house uh, she used uh, her house to make it a place for the church to meet this is what typically would happen in towns and thankfully the uh, architecture of that day with the the open courtyards and the rooms that went round lent itself well. Those who were more wealthy, who had more space, could have the church in their house, and it's likely that Nympha was one of those people. Now, what emerges from these passages is how much the apostles valued women believers who labored alongside them in the gospel. They do not erase gender roles, as our next study will show. And by the way, they don't do that because that would be to the harm of both men and of women but they demonstrate the importance of women for the advance of the gospel of Christ and the health of His church. You know, coming from our perspective, that maybe doesn't seem that strange. But their view of women mirrored not their culture, but that of Christ Jesus their Lord. It was actually a break from the low view of women that dominated the ancient world among Jews and Gentiles. And so... In treating women the way that they did, in line with the way Christ did, they elevated the status of women to where it actually belongs, in keeping with humans being created in God's image, both male and female. And so I want to encourage us in our, our current times, there's really a, a resetting of the facts of the case, where, where what's presented is that somehow it's the Bible and it's the church Uh, or those that believe in God that are bringing women down. Tell that to all the dead women who were killed before they were even born. The reality is that that when we treat people in line with what God created us to be, we are elevating them. We are treating them in the way that, that actually does them good. A lot of the stuff that's going on today is experimentation for the sake of uh, human appetite and human sin. And, and the reality is, is that over time, we're going to see that it does huge damage. And what we want to do is to live in a way where we're, we're living together in a way that reflects God's original design and that shows great respect and honor and love. Um, men to women, that's in purity... Uh, but that's that's affectionate and that honors and reflects the kind of view that Christ has. So I hope you'll do a little meditation and thinking about how Jesus treated women, how the apostles treated women, and, and let that be the way you think about it. Rather than let, letting the culture dictate it uh, or trying to react against culture, a lot of times the debate you hear in the... Um, you know, in the general talk, it, it's, it's pitting one culture against another instead of going back to the actual measurement of what is right and what is wrong and what is actually beneficial. We're, we're not, we're not going to have debates about Victorian culture versus our own culture versus, you know, whatever culture. What we want to do is go back to the standard measurement, an example of the Scriptures as displayed by Christ and His apostles. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I know that what we've covered is um, in some ways kind of obvious, but seems to get lost in, in the arguments and in the war uh, that seems to be going on in our culture I pray that we might display the kind of love and affection, um, the kind of honor and respect uh, toward one another that reflects what you've taught us about who we are and how we're to function. I pray that as men and women uh, bound together in the body of Christ, each with, with function to fulfill according to giftings you've given, that, that we might do that well to your glory that we might display, that the really the new community, a restored relationship that we lost in the garden, and uh, one that that anticipates the perfect relationship that we will have in the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness dwells, for it's in Christ's name. we.